the things of your dreams, the things of your thoughts, just because they aren't manifest doesn't make them unreal. They, in fact, have a way in which they are as real as anything you experience materially. As long as the cats don't get their way, I'm okay. <laughs> well, if the cats do get their way, you won't even know that it was ever otherwise. So. <laughs> Folks say things like The Wire, The Sopranos, or Battlestar Galactica. Some folks say My Little Pony, but I wouldn't know. <laughs> when people ask what the greatest movie of all time is, folks say things like Citizen Kane or maybe The Godfather. I say Ravenous. Seriously, guys, watch it. At least watch the trailer. But when it comes to comics, most longtime readers usually come back to things like Watchmen and this week's book, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. And I'm not going to lie, despite its critical acclaim over the years, I have never read Sandman. I am shocked, Roman. Shocked. And disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. I should give up my nerd card now. So for the next two weeks, it is all Sandman all the time, at least the next two episodes. The Sandman chronicles the eponymous character, also known as Dream or Morpheus. He is one of several siblings, one of the seven endless alongside destiny, death, desire, despair, delirium, and destruction. And while there are many tales of the titular character, the series serves as Gaiman's canvas to tell some weird and wonderful tales where the Lord of Dreams is but a supporting character to the dreams of the world. It's a story about stories. Launched by DC Comics in 1988 and running till 1996, Sandman was the flagship of their Vertigo imprint, which was going to produce some of comics' other greatest series. The book soon became one of the few comics to make the New York Times bestseller list, and to this day, many would argue the book remains in a league of its own. And while many adaptations have been attempted, all but one have failed. There was a recent audio adaptation narrated by Gaiman himself with James McAvoy voicing the role of Morpheus. Today, we'll be covering the first five volumes of Sandman from 1989's Preludes and Nocturnes to 1992's Game of You. And today, we are joined by my longtime friend since childhood, Baroon, who beyond being one of my first comic book buddies, has been bugging me to read Sandman probably as long as we've been reading comic books. Hi, Baroon. Hey. It's uh, it's a bit like not knowing who the Beatles are. Ah. <sighs> I got one. I got over that one a while ago, though. So, but Barun, before we get into Game and Sandman, can you tell us a little bit about your comic sensibilities, the kind of nonsense that you're into? Sure. The Sandman is easily my favorite comic book or set of comic books among any that I have read. And I think it's because the things that I generally go towards are the things that carry with them some facet of philosophy, some facet of warping and shaping and trying to make sense of the nature of reality. And anytime I can find an author who likes to see life and all things in life as metaphor, I think I'm generally drawn to that. When did you read Sandman? Where were you in your life? I don't even remember. It was after Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime as I'm guessing like 17, 18 years old, I was in a bit of a weird place in my life. Like I was a little bit fast forwarded. So yeah, I was about that age. How many times have you read it since? And I'm just curious how your readings of it have changed as you've gotten older. Well, there's a lot of it. So I don't know how much I've read all of it. But for many years, I had a few of the trades. And I think I read each of those probably 10, 12 times. The whole set, I feel like I've probably read three or four times. And each of my readings of it. I think you just get a little bit more. I mean, he weaves a very intricate set of characters that are quite interrelated. 
among this long stretch. And I think it's really easy to lose track of how one character was introduced 80 issues earlier. Mm -hmm. And so as you reread it, you catch these little things as with, I think, a lot of storytellers. Well, Brun, before we go too far into the book, what else are you into? Like, what other sort of things do you enjoy watching? Or what are the greats for you? Well, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and I have... A bunch of Grant Morrison X-Men comic books, I think. I, I do have a few trades of Grant Morrison X-Men. I have a whole shelf full of Buddhist texts and yoga and Hindu texts and things like that. And then I have a long shelf just full of good fiction. It's pretty scattered, I would say, in terms of the things I like. I mean, it really depends on my mood. Sometimes it's nice just to get the sort of... I think when I was a, a younger teenager, I liked a lot more of the mindless superhero, superhero comic books. Yeah, yeah. And I think when the, the Marvel movies first started coming out, I was like, oh, I remember this from when I was a kid and I used to like to go to watch it. And I still kind of enjoy them, but I enjoy them more as like a habit, not as a real enjoyment. I think I generally tend towards, I don't know, I like the stuff where something about it resonates with something that I'm already thinking about in my life or observations I've made, things that relate to the philosophies that I care about. So what would you say is a non-superhero comic that you've really enjoyed? Hmm. Let me think about that for a minute. I'm trying to think what non-superhero... Like, I've read Mouse. That was good. I have that on my bookshelf. That's just good storytelling, I feel like. That's just a more narrow scope. There's one that I read at your place from, and I don't remember the name anymore. I always, you know, when you come visit, and pre-pandemic, Baroon has stayed with me and my family, arguably more than some of my family members, but I always make it a point... I'm always like cycling through a bunch of random indie comics and superhero comics I'm getting from the library. And if I know Baroon's coming to visit literally within a month in advance, I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep this one here because Baroon's going to stay. I'm going to go to bed early because my daughter wakes up early, <laughs> but I'm going to leave a comic book out for Baroon to read late into the night. And it's usually I leave you the weird ass shit most of the I, time. I, I, I really like weird ass shit. <laughs> I remember the I, one about the birds. I, I, I can't even remember the book about the birds. I know, and I keep trying to remember the name of it because I liked it so much. What happens in the book about the birds? It's just this three-inch thick volume. It's like a phone book. And it's just these two birds having conversations on philosophy. It's like a and they encounter every, like all the things that you encounter in a life. This it's a story of these birds encountering it. And the thing is, I don't think these authors intend it to have as much meaning as I think I get out of it in a certain sense, but you can find stuff to relate to in anything. The more absurd it is, I like it more, I find. The, the, the comic I've read the most in my life has got to be Calvin and Hobbes. It's my just, daughter has just started it. so Yeah, but it's been a while since I've read that, but I've read every Calvin and Hobbes trip at least 30 times. Well, so Ryan... Talk to me. What about you and Sandman? What's your history with this book? I probably read it sometime in college. And I read it because there was a lot of mystique to it. I think when I was in high school, I was in that image phase. And I didn't have the money, first off, to buy to buy Sandman. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, image was, was foundational well, wait a minute. for you Were and these me. comic books really... Were, did they really cost that much more or less? Like if you got a DC Vertigo comic versus an image comic? I mean, you kind of... As a high school student, you have to kind of decide what you're going to spend your money on. Oh, and... I see. You just couldn't get the extra comics yeah it's not exactly i could just plunk down a credit card i thought you were saying that the sandman comics were too expensive so you got the image comics <laughs> oh oh no 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 it's just i was into the got image it. comics at the time i thought those were the adult comics and you know probably for me i probably wouldn't have understood sandman even when i read it the first time through so what always attracted me to sandman were the covers the dave mckean covers they're they yeah, were really interesting and odd and i had actually read arkham asylum i think so i was into dave mckean and when i cracked open the books i would see that it wasn't illustrated the interiors weren't by dave mckean and Oftentimes, the art was a little bit choppy. It, it was inconsistent in terms of quality. And so I would put it down. And that's, you know, why when I would go back to like Rob Liefeld and his 
you know, huge biceps and microscopic Tiny feet. ankles, tiny ankles. Tiny yeah. ankles. Very um, realistic I, portrayals. Yeah. And, and then I read it, finally picked up Sandman in college just to see what it was about. And I remember mostly kind of enjoying it at a very surfacey level, like, oh, this is happens and then this happens and then, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then I'm actually rereading it now for the very first time. So this is literally my second read of it. This happening up 15, 16 years later, and it it does feel different. You you have a different sense of what Gaiman is trying to do. I think I have a better understanding of the characters because I am myself more of an adult versus the the, the first time I read it. And then as Barun pointed out earlier, you see a lot of things that Gaiman sets up characters that he introduces very, very briefly, and that you might miss the significance of them the first read through. But in the second read through, you actually see how much of what Gaiman does is premeditated, and how intricate the plotting is. That to me is just like a huge feat, considering he did this through 10 volumes. Like this thing feels like it was meticulously planned out. See, I don't, I mean, again, and I haven't finished it. I'm on my first read, so I'm only halfway through it. And one thing Barun said that I actually appreciated is I feel like I'm skipping on the surface of something and I can see things being set up. I think Barbie or Barbara is a character. There's a couple other recurring characters that are popping in, never mind the other members of the Endless. But I actually don't need to know the backstory. I like popping in and out of this. In fact, some of my favorite stories, it might have been in volume three, volume four, where it's just these one shots of the fucked up world that Neil Gaiman just wants to talk about. And then Morpheus pops up at the end because there is something to do with the dreaming or their dreams. And I just like that there's this undercurrent of this narrative of the universe that he's building, but it's Neil Gaiman's just kind of excuse to tell stories. And then Morpheus pops up at the end. You might be thinking of volume three, Dream Country, because that's interspersed individual stories in between the long arcs. And I didn't mind the fetch quest story. I think that was volume four or volume two about, you know, Lucifer giving up hell and all. I didn't mind going deep into the universe of the dreaming and the endless. But I I just really enjoyed kind of the everyday storytelling where Damon kind of weaves the poetry on top of it. Isn't that how dreams work when you think about it? There's no real consistency. Every time you go to sleep, you wake up. It's like you have like a whole bunch of new stories that have been sort of told to you. So in a way, the structure of Sandman, where he kind of dips in and out of one story, and then you're in the land of fairy, and then you're in a completely contemporary world, and then you're somewhere else. It, It almost follows that dream logic. It makes the whole series feel like a dream. And yet, at the same time, there is a cohesiveness because certain characters will, as you mentioned earlier, keep recurring. So you have a sense of being in this dream where you're getting all of these different scenarios and realities with different rules. And yet at the same time, there's this underlying logic and it's all sort of overseen by this character Morpheus. As long as the cats don't get their way, I'm okay. (laughs) If the cats do get their way, you won't even know that it was ever otherwise. So. Yeah, I, I don't know that Gaiman actually had a... Pl- I, I don't know one way or the other if he had a plan. Yeah, this felt more like improv. When authors talk about writing, usually... And I'm fairly certain, because I've read some of Gaiman's writing about writing, and I'm fairly certain that many authors, they see themselves simply as a vehicle for the story being told, and they are being told the story as they're writing it, in some sense. And for Gaiman, the thing that I love about the Sandman so much is that he doesn't tell a story, he tells an entire mythology. And it's a mythology that there's not simply an academic sort of mythology to it. There's an entire metaphysics around it. And there's a metaphysics that then ties into how human beings live their life and what we value and how we view 
things that affect us day to day, our sense of what is real, our sense of death, all of these sort of things. What's an example of that, Burn? Like in the book? So the entire notion that thing is not made real simply because it is matter. So the things of your dreams, the things of your thoughts, just because they aren't manifest doesn't make them unreal. They in fact have a way in which they are as real as anything you experience materially. The notion that death, it is a strange thing that people fear it so much in some sense. It is not necessary to view it as such a negative thing. The idea that, you know, these characters who are in hell, who are suffering for all eternity, and they are like, no, I need to suffer because somebody else is making me suffer. And like you read through that story when Lucifer abandons hell, they're just like, no, nobody cares anymore. You just want yourself to suffer. There's something very real about how you live your life and how you see things in the world that that's talking about. I don't think I've ever read any other comic book. I've never read any other author use this medium to convey ideas in that way. And I think Gaiman simply has these notions and he sets up this mythology and then the stories kind of arise as he's continuing the series And they are all cohesive because they all fit within the same metaphysics. Well, to your point, yeah, he's laying down ground rules. And I I don't think there's like a Sandman Bible or an outline he had written. I do think as the the story, I think there is an annotated version actually where he, I don't know if it's Neo Gaiman, but somebody goes through and just picks apart like each each of his illusions. What what I was going to say though is I think as Gaiman is kind of letting the story flow, he he has topics he wants to cover in a given month in a given year but i think he was just leaving behind waypoints so yeah the only one that i can think about is barbie or death right i think death was much more well thought out but barbie who i believe is going to show up some more oh she's an interesting character let's just make sure we don't kill her if we do kill her you know there's something more to be done with her later on i'm kind of leaving this waypoint of something i might want to pick up and i was i always like to read different reviews of the books and without spoiling it for myself something uh, someone said about volume 10, which I haven't read is in volume 10, he kind of cleans up all of the like remaining loose threads. He didn't necessarily yeah, he have does. a plan to tie up all the threads, I'm guessing, but it was, oh, well, that was something I wanted to do something with. So let me just kind of finish it up. Uh, yeah, I think there are way more than that. Even within the first five volumes, Nada was introduced mm-hmm. really early on, and then mm-hmm. she becomes a central focus of something. I think it's not going to be too much a spoiler to say like characters like the Corinthian are going to come back. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can There's, tell. You can tell there has to be something with him. Most of the characters you see, even the, I forget the name, but the big dog-like creature. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the, that, that creature was introduced way, way early on. And so all of these characters, and volume 10, by the way, I think is my favorite in a certain way because of how he ties up a certain facet of it. And I don't want to talk about that yet because it will get It was all much. a dream. No, so. no, no it's, <laughs> it, it, it will be a little bit too much of a spoiler, I think. So, Roman, you were hesitant coming into this, and I kind of got the sense that you were treating it a little bit like homework. So I have a general impression of how you felt about it, but did you like it? Did you enjoy reading it? Or, Or are you trying to figure out how all of these pieces fit together? You know, sometimes I feel like this podcast should be called Required Reading with, with Ryan and Raman. I've been putting off reading this for a while, and Barun made the joke about the Beatles earlier. In terms of music, there are the three Bs, with one exception now, I'd been putting off my entire life. So the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. And I went through my Beatles phase when I was living in Asia, like really just listening and getting to know them. I went through my Bob Dylan phase after my daughter was born, and I, 
literally a house being sold across the street. Um, they left a bunch of stuff out and there's Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, which I'm going to read soon because there's nothing else going on. And with comics, most of the greats that I had heard of, I read very early on. I read Marvel Man because Broom spent too much money on eBay for the issues and loaned them to me. I read almost all the Alan Moore stuff. I read a lot of Neil Gaiman, actually. On vacation, Ryan, I read a bunch of his Marvel stuff, just which you texted me and I was like, ah, it's just him collecting a paycheck. I don't know why I put off Sandman. I think I tried Volume 1 a long time ago, probably at your house, Baroon, because Volume 1 felt familiar to me when I read it. I'm glad I'm reading it. This podcast has become a forcing function for the stuff I know I should be reading. I need to let it simmer more. When I was reading it, it's kind of like what we did with The Inkle. Like You kind of just need to go with the flow. And probably because I just read a bunch of Mobius, I was more okay to just go with it and not get too bogged down with the literalism. Although Volume 5, I think that's the one with the little girl's background. Like I didn't enjoy that one as much, but the ones... I, I like the tapestry that he's weaving. I like when I read this book is improv that Neil Gaiman's just kind of telling the stories that he wants to tell when the one off stories happen, even the cats one, which I joke about. Neil Gaiman has another fantastic book about pets, which you guys should read. But when it feels like Gaiman's not trying too hard, I really enjoyed this. When I found myself in volumes where I felt like he was really trying to do something almost screenplay like, I didn't enjoy it. And I was reading, I think it was the end of book three, Gaiman's Afterward, and he was saying, he treats his plots and scripts as like letters to the artist. And I didn't read the full script, but it's kind of like, here's my thesis of what I'm trying to do with this book. And when the book wasn't too literally, too literal about what he wanted to say, and it was just kind of letting it flow, I felt better about it. But there's, there's some where I just felt it was kind of pretentious, honestly. What felt pretentious? I'm just curious. What were the parts that, if you remember, really didn't work for you? Because the first two volumes are really kind of like Sandman on a quest. Like he has to get his shit back. What I loved about volume one, it wasn't my favorite story, but what I love it, volume one, and I hate fetch quests, but volume one is a bit of a fetch quest. But it, in the nature of it, it established the mythology of the universe. It sets up hell. It sets up that there are these siblings, et cetera. So didn't mind volume one. Volume two is arguably my favorite so far. These one-off, these one-shots that are just kind of setting up a universe. And that's really, really enjoyable. Yeah, there's the one story about his buddy that he meets up with every hundred years. Yeah. And huh. and Baroon, I'm, I'm not going to lie. After I read that, I think I went to bed right after I read that. And the next morning I was like, huh, I feel like that's kind of like me and Baroon. We catch up every life stage. More so along the way. But I just genuinely enjoyed that. And there was another, there was a, a, a callback to Hob later on when, I love I love the callbacks to things that, we already fleshed this thing out, but this is an existing priority. I think when Sandman's about to go to confront Hell and he's tying up his business, he goes and says, hey, Hob, I'm not going to see you anymore. But it's good to see you, briefly. So the one I just didn't enjoy, it's volume five. I just didn't like it. It just felt like it was trying too hard. This is a game of you? Yeah. This is the one uh, with Barbie and her quest. Mm -hmm. And I think it could have been done in two, maybe three issues. It it felt like a little too much. Maybe I need to come back to it again. But this one felt like a Netflix show that goes on for too many episodes. It could have been done in six, but they did it in 13. And it's cute. It's funny. The monkey, the turtle, the parrot, and the rat. And I saw where it was going the whole time. And it, it just felt like, let me get in, your, get in your face about things just for the sake of it. And I'm I'm glad we are. There's six more volumes to read. 
but I did not like ending on this one. For, for With Game of You, it really is much more plot-driven. And I definitely think yeah. later on, especially, the story is going to be built more around Morpheus's relationships, specifically with various members of his family. And that's going to be what's driving the action. In Game of You, it's this strange mythology around this dream. It's a sort of confusing mythology that kind of makes sense, but I don't think it's ever fully explained. And I don't think Gaiman ever really wants to fully explain it fundamentally. I, and I don't need everything explained. In fact, I got it yeah. from like within the first or second issue of that volume. I was like, I see where this is going. Volume five felt the most obvious. I agree. And I, what I did enjoy about it was Morpheus doesn't appear. He hardly yeah. appears until the end. And But that's what I loved about volume three or four, right? Where it's this really cool issue and then Morpheus pops in and you see how it relates to his world and the mythology. I didn't need a five issue miniseries about Barbie. I think I agree that the game of you is maybe of these five, my least favorite. And I think part of that is because it's just a story for the most part. There's a lot of relatively straightforward storytelling and so a lot of back and forth. And I agree that it probably could have been done in fewer episodes. No, um, but what I will say is, you know, it reminded me a little bit of Fables, which I don't know if you guys have read it yet. But and again, this is the source material, right? This was done before Bill Willingham did Fables. So I was like, oh, OK, I, I could see the callbacks to it. So I love seeing the source material. But yeah, almost too little. Gaiman does a few different things. Sometimes his writing is and this is true in some of his other works outside of Sandman as well, I've noticed and some of them I connect more with and some of them I connect less with for these reasons. He really explores a lot of different things. Sometimes he just wants to tell you an idea and he wants to create characters and things around that to convey the idea. Sometimes it's just a whole lot of character development and it seems to go pretty slowly and relationships and a lot of the stuff like Morpheus and Hobb interacting with each other is a lot of just their relationship is just describing a relationship in some sense. And there are a few ideas interspersed here and there, but there's not a lot of story in all those pages. And then sometimes it's just a whole lot of story. And this one, Game of You, is a very linear story, but the characters also might not be the ones that are most interesting to you as a reader, right? I mean, some character is going to be more interesting to one reader versus another. And there are some things that are worth noting, like when he wrote this, this was at the, I don't know if it was the peak of, but it was relative height of the AIDS epidemic for a lot of this. And so there's references to certain things, some of the characters responses that people have to gay and transgendered people. He has certain representation of those things that today seem pretty straightforward and tame, but at the time when he put it out, I think would have been early nineties, right? Provocative. And so I think there's also some contextual things as to how well the characters land in how much of an impact they have. And I'll be honest, how much am I going to relate to the thoughts and emotions of uh, a little blonde girl? Probably not that much. So there's some things that are, yeah. For me, Game is a talented enough writer that if we can't relate to a blonde girl, we have to relate to the endless. Easier. <laughs> but I do kind of like him trying to bring Barbie to life, a character who is just sort of this throwaway character in like book two. And this is now her quest, her story. It's weird. When I first read Game of You, it was actually one of my favorite ones, and I think that was because it was plot-driven. It was very surfacy, and I was sort of more attracted to that than some of the stories that were exploring the mythology of the dream world or that were exploring the nature of dreams, which kind of went over my head. But it's sort of like how when you're a kid, Return of the Jedi is your favorite Star Wars movie because of Jabba's palace. And then you go back to it, and you're like, oh, that's actually just surface stuff. And thinking about Game of You, I think one of the biggest problems is that the stakes 
the dramatic stakes are never really clear versus yeah. in the others it's like oh man salmon is trapped oh man salmon might be trapped in hell will he ever get out and in this one it's sort of like well what if barbie fails what if the cuckoo takes over and at the end of the day i mean the cuckoo does kind of get what she wants so it's not as if the cuckoo was that much of a threat to really anyone so i i feel like it's a very surfacey story and it's one where the drama isn't nearly as impactful as it needs to be and the later episodes the later volumes of salmon will definitely get a sense of much higher stakes stakes that truly threaten morpheus but game well, of you ultimately isn't it the, on the flip side of Game of You, I just remember, like, one of my favorite mini arcs in this entire run was not so much the stakes of Morpheus having the keys to hell, but the two issues where he's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? And all the different gods come to him and petition and all of his just like inane interactions with these, which I couldn't read into the metaphor, but it's like, I feel like each one of these is like a metaphor for something else, be it like his hilarious interpretation of the Asgardians of order and chaos. I, I love the cardboard box. <laughs> like, I was like, the, I really hope someone has done that for a Halloween costume, but the, the, nothing effectively happens in the, those one or two issues where he's trying to figure out what the fuck to do with the key. And the thing that happens with the key at the end is the most obvious thing. So from a straight plot standpoint, it's a pretty mediocre story. But it was just living in this mythology, some dumbass shit, <laughs> which is I like actually, a funny, snarky commentary. And I loved it. I loved those two. I disagree with you from a plot point standpoint, because for me, this one was actually the most surprising one. Because it keeps subverting your expectations, right? You have this big setup. Okay, I got to go to hell to save my ex-girlfriend who I condemned there. And it kind of sets up this huge fight between him and Lucifer. And when he gets there, Lucifer's like, yeah, I quit. So, you know, no, you're but, but, that, that, but, the, but that part, those first part, like the setup, I'm going to hell. I got to say goodbye to everyone. For sure. That's total, the endless Sandman, Lucifer hell shit. But after he gives them the key... Same as just like, huh? And it's this once he gets the key to what he does with the key, those two issues, nothing happens. It's great. Well, it is a lot of like interesting characters and relationships, but there's actually some interesting themes even there, I think. Like what? The idea that Gaiman carries this forward in later writings outside mm -hmm. of Sandman. So American Gods is like yeah. built on this notion of these gods derive their power from people's belief in them. And all they are are stories. All they are are ideas, but that is a very, very powerful thing. And so him interacting with different ideas that have different degrees of power mm -hmm. is an interesting concept. You know, what's uh, interesting, a, a, a lot of people have picked that up in the modern comic era, like Straczynski and Jason Aaron with Thor. That's mm. that's really a thing. The more people believe that's where the power comes from. And Fable yeah, does that as well. And I think it's arguably like, what is the most... The entire notion of the endless, I find, in Sandman is incredibly fascinating to me. You have these beings who are, and I think this is one of the reasons I'm so tied to it, it's very, very similar to Hindu mythology in this way. You have these beings that are incredibly powerful, and you can look upon them as you know having some sort of material representation, but they're just concepts, really. And so the beings and the concepts that have the real power but the beings are fallible. Like there's this notion of these gods and these concepts, and yet they all fuck up. 
they all make mistakes and do stupid things. And they change in these ways that are very human in some sense. And then the idea of everything, nothing is an absolute thing. Like everything is in flux and yet everything always was. Karma is a very real thing in this universe for every single thing that this completely universal omnipotent, like not omnipotent, but this, this never, well, the idea of whether or not Morpheus can die is an interesting concept, but this never ending notion of a dream of destruction, of despair, of destiny, of all these things, these endless, they still have a story to tell. They're not just there. They share this same thing that people share of being bound by the laws of cause and effect. Actually, that was really interesting what you just said, because I never thought about this episode in those terms of this is the first time you see Morpheus directly interacting with these gods, seeing kind of the relationship between the dreaming and these deities who are all of different powers because some of them have been forgotten and some of them are, are much more prominent. The one thing I don't like about Gaiman's work, though I don't particularly fault him for it because it's simply where he's coming from as a writer, is that it's very, very Eurocentric in its metaphysics. So his notion of Lucifer as the second greatest power and the Judeo-Christian God as the most powerful figure, like he still retains that. Well, he's writing for a Western audience. Well, I think he's also writing based on what he knows, right? So he doesn't have much knowledge of Asian mythology or philosophy or religions, right? So he just doesn't incorporate any of that. But I don't really bear him any ill will for that because within the constraints of what he knows in the world, what he's familiar with, he does this amazing job of expanding it and expanding with concepts that align quite well with a lot of Eastern philosophies. To that Eurocentric comment, what did you think about Sandman's relationship with Nada? I'm just wondering how that played out today, because when I read it the first time, obviously Sandman condemning her to hell was completely... Kind of a dick move. ...fucked up, but that's acknowledged within the text. Well, it's acknowledged 10,000 years later. His sister's like, that was a dick move. 10,000 years later. He is a god, <laughs> or he is this eternal being. Yeah, he doesn't quite understand how others relate to things. He's not a particularly nice person. He's aloof. He's aloof. Right. But that's just his, his nature. But I think, what Ryan, what you were getting at was it, you were saying you were, talk, you were going from Eurocentric to Nada. So I assume it's because she's one of the few black characters. Yeah, she's black. Yeah, but I don't think that has much. To, I, mean, I, don't, I guess I'm not particularly sensitive to that sort of thing, because if you're talking about a character... 10,000 years ago, where would civilizations, where would the origins of modern human beings have come from? They would have been dark skinned. So I think it's That's just. That's not my issue so much as, I guess. Not just the way she's treated, because she's treated poorly, and that's Gaiman's intention. But then at the end, there's this resolution where they kind of have this like dinner, and she's just like, Yeah, you were kind of a real jerk. And that's it. And then there's that plus in Game of You, right? There's the black woman who's homeless and insane and her function is basically to shield the white girl from death when the building collapses on her i'm looking at these moments the way black characters are treated and then later on there's actually a character named ruby who shows up where i don't know i guess they're all sort of victims or they're used primarily as keys to kind of either move the plot forward they're essentially like plot points and i guess that was a little bit eyebrow raising to me today 
And that's why I was interested when you talking about Gaiman's Eurocentrism. And I know this isn't mm. about necessarily religion, but this is about the depiction of three black characters, one one of whom we haven't gotten to yet, but whose deaths... Is Ruby the girlfriend later on? No, Ruby is their driver when they go on the road trip. Then there's another black character as well later on, but I won't say who that is because it'll give it away. But she does play a supporting role, that other black character that I'm thinking of. There might be others that I'm not remembering. Yeah, I think that I am one of those people who does not like to judge people by standards of times and situations in which they do not live. And so I think the idea of an author in the late 80s, early 90s, having to think about representation of different groups within their characters in the comic book. Like, that's just not the world that he was inhabiting at that time. Yeah, I agree. So I don't put too much into that at all. What's interesting is that he does talk about in uh, actually a second uh, one in A Doll's House when it introduces Hobb and he's meeting with him in one of their once in a century meetings Hobb talks about how he has started a business in the slave trade and he's made money from it. He has regret. Well, no, it's before he has regret. It's when he's happy about it mm. because he's making money. And Morpheus is like, oh, you don't feel bad doing this? And at the end of their meeting, Morpheus is like, this is a bad thing that you are doing. And I feel like Gaiman is doing his best to tackle the issues that he is aware of in the time, in the social circle and the time in which he was writing this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'm not by any means advocating cancel Neil Gaiman. And I am uncomfortable when people try to hold authors' work from 20, 30 years ago to today's standards. But at the same time, we are reading this today. And even if this isn't necessarily a criticism of Neil Gaiman, but saying, oh, you should have done this differently, you should have known better, that's not what we're saying. But we are kind of looking at some of the decisions that he made through today's lens. from a modern lens. And I think it's fair at least to comment on that. I don't know if there's a solution. What should Neil Gaiman have done? He should have told the story he wanted to tell, which he did. But it is also fair to just kind of compare the depictions of some of the characters and just sort of wonder to what extent was this a product of his time. I certainly don't think Neil Gaiman is racist or anything like that. I guess I would have two responses. One is that like, I'm just not sensitive to that sort of stuff. Like I still enjoy Ben Kingsley as Gandhi, <laughs> even though he's an old <laughs> white, even though he's a white dude. So like, I, 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 he's half Indian, isn't he? I don't know. He's, and I, I, I never minded Apu and I still don't mind Apu as a character. So I'm not the right person to talk to about sensitivity towards those sort of depictions because I just personally don't mind them when they concern my own race. So the, where are the but Indian then, people in Sandman? No, sorry. Yeah, I know, right? It's like oh, there's there's a billion Indian people on this planet. None of them are in Sandman. So oh, there's one there's uh, one dude who shows up later. I think the only thing I was commenting on there was actually not the Indian people, but the concept, the philosophy yeah. that of yeah. India. I think Gaiman would be happy to write it in. I think he's just not familiar with it, but because he tries to do his best with the Japanese god, I've, I don't even know how to properly pronounce it, like Susana Odo Mikoto. I don't know what the I had never heard of it outside of uh, this deity outside of the Sandman comics, so I'm not familiar with what he's referencing. But he has like one Japanese god, and then he has Egyptian gods and things like that. The second thing I would say is the thing that I always like find annoying about comic books in general, and Sandman does an okay job of this, but not a great job of it, is not just how Eurocentric they are, it's how human-centric they are. Like These are things that are supposed to be about all of existence, and yet people 
play this humongous role in it, which is, of course, necessary because, you know, human beings are the ones reading it. But still, the few times when Gaiman goes away from that, like he has the cats in that one issue or in some places he introduces he like mentions concepts of beings in other planets or other galaxies or other types of beings but he generally focuses on what he feels like he can write well as an author well it's also it is a commercial enterprise so while he does have carte blanche to kind of say whatever he wants to and he does he knows to maintain the relationship with the reader he can't go too far off the deep end because right. this is a DC comic, you know, it's the Vertigo flagship. And again, he takes a lot of liberties. He takes a lot of chances. If he decides to go to Pluto and talk about the amoeba living on Pluto, he doesn't get to put a trans character in. He only has so many things that I'm sure he could push on with the editors and if based no, on audience response. One really cool thing with regards to all of that is the fact that Morpheus is depicted very clearly as being not just of different races, but even of different species and different sure. physical forms, yeah. depending on who is looking at him. Right. So I think that kind of ends up conveying, you get this idea that the artist is drawing him in this way because that's what they picked, right? This kind of really pale person. I think the depiction of Lucifer as, you know, sticking with God's most beautiful angel being a blonde haired white man is probably more... <laughs> Of all the different things with regards to that category of stuff that one might be sensitive to, I think that one is the one that's like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Are you saying the devil is a white man, Burin? I'm I'm saying the devil probably like doesn't have to be a white man. <laughs> I would I would rather because <laughs> remember the devil is God's most beautiful angel. Uh, the devil is supposed to look, yeah, the devil is supposed to be beautiful best, to behold. Yeah, the best looking person you've ever seen. Anyway, <laughs> this is usually the part where I ask Ryan, what are we reading next week? Well, I think you guys know it's going to be Sandman's volume six through 11, six through 10 officially. And then they tacked on 11 a little bit later. So it's amazing they- that they call 11. a see, I have it. And I guess I'd never thought of it as a separate volume. I didn't realize they designated it that way. Oh, well, maybe they're just doing it now to charge more for the whole set. For the For the absolute but, ultimate edition slipcase gold foil cover version. It, it is absolutely it is a book. It is a book of the 90s, guys. But I'm really looking forward, actually, to reading the next five to six issues because the book is going to change. And we are going to see, as we alluded to earlier, a lot of the drama is going to come from Morpheus's own family. And you're going to get a much better sense of the weird family dynamics of the endless as as well as some of the interiority of morpheus because to this point you don't really know what's going on inside his head you can tell when he's pissed but that's about it we're going to see a lot more complexity of emotion from morpheus in the later volumes and i'm actually really looking forward to exploring that and trying to work out with you guys how that all relates to what we read this week in the first five volumes so we'll see you next week same bat time same bat place thanks Baroon. thank you Baroon. thanks see you next week and that's our show like what you heard be sure to share with a friend subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts see lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com i'm roman segel and i am and have always been ryan joe